Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. It is great to be with you here today. Today on the show, I'm really excited to have a guest who I've been reading and listening to for a few years now. Uh, prior to that, I wasn't telling anyone I was reading and listening to him. His name in certain circles is one of uh, one of which you should not speak. And so I'm glad to have Pastor Doug Wilson on the show today. He's the pastor of Christ Church Moscow up in Idaho. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Uh, thank you for having me. Or you can call me Wugless Dilson if you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I might even title the podcast episode that. <laughs> Very fun. Well, uh, you know, I've got a lot of my audience has been reading, listening uh, to your content for a while. Um, you came out with a book recently, Mere Christendom, and uh, that was something that our church, um, several people in our church have been reading. I've read, enjoyed it, and so I'm glad to talk about it. Really, the first question I wanted to ask is, you know, you've been writing on topics related to Christianity, politics, culture for a long time now. What inspired you to publish Mere Christendom uh, at this point? Well, I, I would I would have to say it, it was a uh, combination of things, but the main the main thing was uh, the the world the the world of people that run the world. Everybody appears to have lost their minds. Just. Um, the, the last two or three years have just been bonkers. And, and what, I've, what I've seen that as evidence of or evidence that Christians should be able finally to be able to see, and that is that secularism has failed. All right. So um, I, I believe that insightful Christians have been arguing that secularism is untenable, um, just like the guy jumps off the skyscraper might be convinced that he can fly and has the sensations of flying uh, there. Uh, that's how, that's how secularism uh, has been or the prodigal son, not running out of money on the first day. Uh, there was, there was a time when the claims of secularism seemed plausible, right? In in the late Eisenhower years, uh, we can be Americans and have a decent society without reference to God, you know, things like that. And it looked like we kind of could. Um, but the last two or three years has revealed that, no, we can't. Um, without Christ, we can't even define what a little boy is or what a little girl is. We we don't know. And if if we don't, um, if if we can't, pass the test as a society, if we can't pass the test of the I am not a robot test on the website, if we can't pass that test, then then where are we? And so I I believe that Christians are now open to the argument of um, the Christian faith being the basis for a transcendental appeal for our governing of society. Yeah, I think it's a really compelling argument. It's one that shook me, you know, rattled me. I'm only 36, but when I saw the whole transgender ideology, that was the that was like the tipping point for me, where it really mm -hmm. like broke kind of a spell I felt secularism had over me. And so I, I definitely resonate with that. One question, you know, there's a lot of I think, and I, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I'm really am curious about this. So in 2020, I started discovering all these people I'd never heard of, like this guy named Rush Dooney. And, and so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd never heard that name in uh, in seminary. I, uh, I think they must have buried his books or burned them or something. But I started looking into this whole movement of Christian reconstructionism and all the stuff that seemed to be birthed out of the 70s. Yeah. Is that a movement that you identified with that you were part of and swam in those waters? Or what was that like? Yeah, I'd say it's fair to say that I was swimming in those waters. I would describe myself as a fellow traveler um, uh, with them. I was never a, I was never a card carrying reconstructionist, um, but I was I, I read a boatload of their books back in the day. I learned an awful lot from them. I learned some things that I didn't want to replicate. Some things that I don't think they did well, but they made a serious attempt. It was a serious attempt by conservative Bible believers to apply the Bible to everything. And uh, I learned uh, immensely from that. I was, so the, the three big figures 
in the Reconstruction Movement would have been Greg Bonson, uh, Rush Dooney, and Gary North. And I I met Rush Dooney once, uh, just in passing at a conference, and I met Greg Bonson once, also at a conference, and never met never met Gary North. Um, but I was talking to Bonson about this, uh, you know, how how I'm not a card carrying Reconstructionist, and he made a distinction that I thought was um, helpful to me. He said, there's a difference between a school of thought and a movement. Okay. So a movement requires a leader, a, a movement. You've got to have party discipline, right? So I was never, never part of the reconstructionist movement, but I would say it's fair to fair to say that I, I was part of that school of thought. If we said that Leibniz and, um, uh, Descartes were rationalists. We don't. We don't mean that they put out a newsletter together. We just mean that they had certain identifiable common features. Um, and I do with the Reconstructionists: hostility to secularism, wanting biblical authority to be recognized by our society, and things like that. So with the Christian recon, I guess one of the things, it's kind of like this joke, like if you in the last, in 2020, if the men who were able to see clearly what was going on, they have a lot more credibility right now with a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. if they were able to identify the problem quickly and provide a solution, provide some kind of either resistance or way out or a broader vision from Christian history, I want right. to hear from those guys. So. I'm curious with the Christian recons, what back in their time, how, how were they? Because in a lot of ways, they seemed prescient to me. They were like, they were oh, yeah. on some topics that I was, I was asleep to up until 2020. So what were they seeing that gave rise to that school of thought? I think, I think that they were uh, probably one of the central things that I learned from them was Rush Dooney's uh, uh, idea of the inescapable concept. Um, which is encapsulated by not whether, but which, okay? It's not whether you're going to impose morality through law. It's which law you're going to impose, you know, um, which, which it's which morality you're going to impose. So to illustrate that, um, someone might say, well, you pro-lifers want to uh, impose your morality on the mother and the doctor. Sorry, sorry, birthing person and the doc. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't want to get your podcast in trouble. Here. <laughs> um, you want to impose your morality on the mother and the doctor, and to which the Reconstructionists helped me understand how I could say yes, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly what I want to do. Uh, I'm making a moral claim. It's wrong to kill the baby, um, and. You may not do it, and you may not do it because God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, thou shalt not commit murder. So, yes, uh, I want to impose my morality on you. But, and this is where Rush Dooney was so helpful, I also want to point out that I'm not unique in that. You and the doctor want to impose your morality on the child. So it's it's not whether there's going to be an imposition of morality. It's like Vladimir... Uh, Lenin once said, who, whom, you know, who's, who's doing it and who is it being done to? Um, and that's the, that's what it boils down to. It's the inescapable, inescapable concept. So when people say you're just trying to establish a theocracy, I'd say inescapable concept. All societies are theocracies. The only thing that we have a debate over is who is the God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, every every society, in order to even be a society, has to have a highest authority past which there is no appeal. And that authority, whatever it is, is the uh, god of the system, Theo. Yeah, that makes sense. And for my listeners, I've seen we, um, our, our elders, me and Matt specifically, put out an op-ed in the local paper here, and we employed some of this logic uh probably unbeknownst to us, a lot of times when you're talking and thinking out loud and writing stuff, you don't really, you know, no attribute, no, not attributing it to Rush Dooney or anybody like that. And I'm sure if we trace, traced Rush Dooney's thought back through Christian history, it's it's all the way back to City of God and that kind of stuff with Augustine. But um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a very potent way of thinking. And I find yes. it, it resonates with a lot of people. Um, with your book, Mere Christendom, 
Uh, I'm curious because the case for Christian nationalism came out last year, maybe the year before. My podcast listeners know I've had Wolf on to talk about his work. Mm -hmm. How might your work, uh, I can see a lot of overlap, but how might it differ or how is it unique compared to the case for Christian nationalism? So um, uh, Stephen's book, I I enjoyed his book uh, very much. His book is talking about uh, a, a particular uh, Protestant political theory, the historic Protestant political theory that he is applying in the American context. Right? So he, it's simply um, historic Protestant um, political theory applied here. Um, I'm doing something very similar, only I'm zooming out. So what ha- what happens when you have 17 nations that have named the name of Christ? Well, that would be, what, and what's their relationship to one another? Um, that would be Christendom. So if if America became a Christian nation and if America were the only one, everybody else was secular and we were the one Christian nation, uh, that wouldn't be Christendom. Okay, that would be a Christian nation uh, uh, implementing Christian nationalism. But if, as in medieval Europe, where you had multiple states and duchies and principalities and so forth, all of them acknowledging Christ as Lord, their relationship to one another, to one another is helpfully described as Christendom. Yeah, and I think even in the early colonies, you could say it was a type of Christendom with the different states exactly. being uh, kind of micronations with different denominational affiliations. So, I, yeah, I think that, that helps me make sense of kind of where you're your work fits within the broader landscape. Uh, Something that comes up in the book is the topic of theonomy. It's a topic, like I said, I I hadn't heard of. And so I've been trying to, to kind of piece the puzzle together as a a late comer to the party. Um, A lot of people, when they hear me talk, they're like, Oh, you're a theonomist. I'm like, well, I'm not, no, I'm not ready to adopt that label. (laughs) You know, I'm not, like you said, I'm not a card carrying member or anything. I just, I'm trying to apply the Bible to all of life faithfully as we see throughout Christian history. Um, but one thing that seems to be a, a difference is a strict theonomist, a reconstructionist theonomist, and a gen, general equity theonomy, which I think you've described yourself as that. Right. H- how are those differences? How would you articulate those differences? Okay, so um, the the difference would be uh, a hermeneutical difference. It's not whether it's not whether God's law applies today. It's how do we exegete the scriptures in order to understand how it applies to us in our modern context. Um, so, so the joke that reveals this would be when people ask me if I'm a theonomist, I say, Oh no, no, no. I hate God's law. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, oh, you, you know what I mean? And I say, well, actually, no, I don't. Um, because every Christian, uh, if you pose this qu- question to uh, any Christian, should we do what God wants us to do, or should we do something else? Well, every Christian is going to say, well, yeah, we should do what God wants us to do. And I would say, so how can we find out what he wants us to do? Well, he wrote a book. (laughs) 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 Let's study the book. Now, um, the the diehard, let's say the strict um, 1970s theonomists, you know, some of those guys, uh, they're, they're going to be debating whether it was lawful to execute someone with a firing squad, um, because that's not a biblical method of execution. And some of them would be arguing, yes, but the bullets, what are bullets, but very little stones. And we can th- just, just because we can throw stones at high rates of speed. So they're, uh, they get kind of into the weeds, right? So it's, um, like almost rabbinical, like uh, slicing it very thin and and wanting to be very meticulous, which has its place. And, you know, I don't want to backhand it too severely, but there's a um, there's a hermeneutical difference. What what differences did the coming of Christ make to the implementation of the Mosaic law? Uh, you know what? um so in the Westminster Confession, which is the confession that our church is operating uh, under, um, it distinguishes the Old Testament law and says there's moral law, 
there's ceremonial law and there's judicial law. So the moral law is the same throughout all history. It's always been wrong to steal your neighbor's wife. It's always been wrong to, to steal his donkey. It's always been wrong to lie in court about him. So that's the moral law. And, and virtually all the reformed would acknowledge the continuing validity of the moral law. Then there's the ceremonial law, uh, bulls, and, bulls and goats being sacrificed, uh, the ritual observances of the Levitical Mosaic system. Uh, and virtually all the reformed would uh, agree that the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so we don't sacrifice bulls and goats any longer because Christ was the Paschal lamb uh, sacrificed for us. Um, we keep the Passover by getting rid of the yeast of malice and wickedness, not by getting rid of physical yeast in our homes and so forth. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. And there's general agreement, broad agreement on that. The sticking point has to do with the judicial law. And the Westminster Confession says that uh, the laws that were given to Israel as a state or as a nation expired together with the uh, cessation of that nation, right? When, when Israel ceased to be, the laws that were given to them, particularly for the governance of that nation, uh, also ceased. And then the Westminster Confession says, except as the general equity thereof may require. Okay, so yeah. um, so when I say I'm a general equity theonomist, what I'm saying is just to take a standard, like a chestnut example, uh, Old Testament law required that you put a balustrade around the roof of your house. Okay, and that's because in the Middle East, uh, people would go up on the roof in the evening to cool off. It was like a second story deck and and the law, basically, basically, if someone fell off your roof and you didn't have a railing, then you were liable for the um, for the harm done. Okay, so I don't believe if if uh, some if I were made uh, the potentate or the magistrate of modern society, uh, my thought experience if I were president, and what a glorious three days that would be. <laughs> um, if I were in, in a position to make decisions, I wouldn't require that every modern house have a balustrade around the roof of its house because we don't go up there anymore. We, it, it's our circumstance is not their circumstance, but there's a general equity principle in that law, which is that you are responsible for the, uh, to observe best practices when it comes to the health and safety of your guests. Right. So if I'm a judge in 21st century America and it's now a biblical republic and a case comes before me where someone fell off of a second story deck that didn't have a railing or someone refused to shovel their walk and someone slipped and broke their leg. Right. I would have no problem deciding in favor of the plaintiff and then say in my decision, as it says in scripture, you shall put a balustrade around the roof of your house. Okay, that that would be an application of the general equity of that law. So the law is still authoritative. The law still teaches us what justice means and what it looks like. But here's the this is the cool thing. I, I think this is the cool thing about it is it's not just the particular laws of the Old Testament. Okay, it's the the I believe in the continuing authority of that system of law. Okay, it's it's uh, their their way of doing it. So, the if you read through the Mosaic Code, that judicial system for Israel is what we would call a case law system. Okay, um, and that case law where you have these, you know, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Where'd that come from? As opposed to the top down, uh, the Roman Emperor Justinian tried to have a, an expansive code that sort of anticipates everything and covers everything. Uh, what a case law system does is it gives you a particular instance. You appoint wise and good judges who can look at that precedent and decide in terms of it. So in 
um, well, and the cool thing about it is that King Alfred basically took the laws of Deuteronomy and made them the laws of England. But he didn't just bring the laws over. He brought the legal system over, which is, uh, um, we call it in scripture, it's a case law system. But in our heritage, it's a common law system. That's uh, So in the United States, uh, 49 of the 50 states still have a common law basis. The one exception is Louisiana. Uh, and that's because they were settled by the French. The Anglo- um, the Anglo-Saxon settlements are all common law systems, which is why. Uh, so it, back in Alfred's day, if uh, let's say there was a case where uh, a widow's dog ate the neighbor's chicken. OK, and then that case was resolved 20 years later, down the 20 miles down the road, somebody's ox gored the neighbor's dog. OK, different animals, different town, different villages. But a wise judge is going to be able to look at the one and apply the principle to the next one. Okay, so that's our that's our whole common law system. The common law system is biblical law, right? Yeah, yeah. it's theonomy. It's theonomy. Uh, so when people when people say theonomy or theocracy, it's generally thrown around with as a scare word, mm-hmm. designed to make you think of The Handmaid's Tale or uh, Middle East where you're chopping off thieves' hands and that, that sort of thing. But that's not our legal system. That's not, that's not it. Yeah, I've, I've sensed that a lot. And one of the concerns I just have with kind of deploying the theonomy thing, because it's a scare word, uh, you know, it's almost like with a lot of these concepts, whether it's Christian nationalism, theonomy, a lot of these 20th century phrases, I have a hard time just not only as an academic, but as a pastor, kind of look, looking back into Christian history, I can see, I can see like, yeah, that makes sense. General equity is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So mm-hmm. I, can, I can get that. One of my hesitations with deploying them today is like, they seem to be unnecessary because uh, we're assume, okay, assume what you've said is true, that if we look back through Christian history, this is just the way people thought, <laughs> then I would rather just use the tradition and avoid the kind of like conflict that comes with deploying a word like theonomy. Does that make sense? How have you navigated sure. that? Yeah, I would say um, uh, that's a quite a reasonable goal. And as long as the sub, as long as the substance there, I don't care about the words. Um, but please note that if you don't use any scary words, they will come up with some for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've noticed I, that. <laughs> not, none of us ever adopted Christo-fascist or, or Theo-fascist or um, white supremacist. You know, uh, so, so basically um, Christian nationalism is another one that they wanted to be scary, like white supremacist or uh, domestic extremist. But I thought, oh, okay. I, I can live with that one. I'm a Christian and I'm in this nation. Sure. Nations are good things. Christians are good things. Why don't we put chocolate and peanut butter together and we can have this marvel. We can have this. So are, yeah, y- yes, you can, you can avoid, you can avoid the, the terms that will cause people to flame out all you want, but basically that's only going to work when you're dealing with reasonable people. Right. And we're not. And we're not. <laughs> so that kind of gets us on to the next topic is uh, this idea of theocracy. You've mentioned it prior, um, and I think it, it you've kind of addressed it in your answer just now. But it really scares a lot of people, even Christians. Christians are very scared of oh, yeah. these words, these concepts. And so when, when you're pastoring someone and they're like, Pastor Doug, you know, I'm really scared of, of us and how we talk. It seems like you want theocracy. How are you going to help that person, assuming they're a reasonable person? How are you going to help that person maybe not embrace theocracy, but at least embrace the concepts behind it? Okay, so let's suppose that I'm not being interviewed by a hostile mainstream reporter about this. But let's say I'm talking to my cousin at a Thanksgiving dinner. And we've always had a good relationship. 
And he, he says, I don't know, it's just that gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know, because when I think theocracy, I think that you Presbyterians are going to take over and then you're going to start dunking Baptists in the right. in, in the uh, in the village pond. And I'd say, well, no, why would I do that? The Baptists do a fine job of dunking Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, flogging Baptists. Right? You're you're going to, and that that's something that has happened from time to time, and you know, right? so that kind of thing has happened. So uh, the person says, I'm afraid that if you Pado Baptists or if you Presbyterians, you state church people get um, get in control, you're going to start hammering people over denominational distinctives. Okay, I'm afraid of that. So I would have two responses to, to that. The first one is I would say to my cousin, look, so let's say we did take over and let's say I'm lying to you right now and we had this evil plan, blah, ha, ha. The thing that we the thing that we want to do most in the world is to flog us a Baptist. <laughs> um, now, I said, suppose we did that. Do you, my Baptist cousin, think that Jesus would be happy or unhappy about that? Unhappy. Unhappy. <laughs> and so uh, my follow-up question is, do you think we should conform our behavior down here to what makes Jesus happy and unhappy? And he said, yeah, I think we should. And I said, well, welcome to Christian nationalism. Welcome to <laughs> theocracy. You're, you, just, you just told me that we should do what Jesus wants. And we should not do what Jesus doesn't want. So the thing you're afraid of is uh, Christians in the name of Christ disobeying Christ. That's the thing you're afraid of. Mm. Okay. Um, and I would say I'm afraid of that too. I, uh, nobody wants the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody wants to go back to the time when, when there were wars over denominational differences. So I'm as concerned about that as you are. The thing that you're concerned about is not Christian obedience in the public square. You're concerned about Christian disobedience in the public square. And because you want obedience in the public square, that makes you a theocrat. Okay. So yeah. that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing is I would say you have to, fun you have to realize that there's a long tradition, centuries long tradition of Christians hammering these issues out. Okay, and I would say on church-state relations and on theocracy and theonomy and all of these issues, I am an American Westminster guy. Okay, so if you look at uh, the original British Westminster Confession, and then you look at the American Westminster Confession, where they, they um, ad adjusted, edited it at a couple of places. One of the places where they edited it was on church-state relations. Okay, and they said basically the magistrate, the civil magistrate, is to make no distinctions whatever between churches of our common Lord. Okay, what that what that means is they were they had a commitment to mere Christendom. It was it was fine for the Congregationalists to be what they were in Connecticut, and for the Anglicans to be what they were in Virginia, and you know Presbyterians to be what they were with you know whatever. So they all they all worshipped the church of our common they all worshipped our common Lord, and so the magistrate was supposed to be a nursing father to all the Christian churches, to be a friend of the gospel, and basically what it boiled down to was the American system was a system of informal establishment. Okay, okay, F formal establishment means that you pick a particular denomination, like the Church of England or the Church of Denmark. Um, and our founders didn't want to do that at the federal level, and I don't want to do it at the state level. But at the state level, but even but but at the, even at the state level, where I don't think it's a good idea, it's not an unconstitutional idea, because when the when the Bill of Rights was ratified, and the First Amendment was became uh, part of the Constitution, at that time. Nine of the 13 colonies, nine of the 13 states, had official relationships with a particular Christian denomination. And Connecticut had theirs down into the 1830s. 
they were it was an established state religion so i'm not in favor of establishment even at the state level but it's not an uncon it's a bad idea but not an unconstitutional idea i far prefer the informal establishment which uh we had well down to this continued on after this point but in 1892 there was a supreme court decision that determined that the United States is a Christian nation. Okay. Now um, I'm, I'm 70 years old right now. And the, my birthday, when I was born in 1953, my day, the day of my birth was closer to that Supreme court decision than we are now in this conversation. Okay. It wasn't that long ago. And, uh, and so the point is in 1892, the Supreme, uh, there was a, Bizarre, the, 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 if you want to look it up, the court case is exquisitely named. It's Holy Trinity versus the United States. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, and the Holy, Tri- Holy Trinity won. Um, the, oh, good. <laughs> uh, uh, Ho- Holy Trinity was a church that had called a British minister. And okay. there was a law that Congress had made a law against importing uh, foreign labor and paying for their passage because of they were dealing with workmen on big construction projects. And some uh, prosecutor went rogue and, and prosecuted this church for calling a British minister and they paid his passage over. So the Supreme court settled that decision in a kind of common sense way. But then they said uh, in this um, uh, wonderful, the, the Supreme court said, and while we're on the subject, Let's review the history of the United States from its founding, the initial colonies, Mayflower Complex, the, the fundamental orders of Connecticut, all the way through. And the Supreme Court said, we are a Christian nation. We're, we are a Christian people. Now, that, what that means is that we, ha- uh, we have a transcendental standard to appeal to when we say, no, no homosexual marriage. No. Um, no, you can't conduct these surgeries on little boys and girls. No, let, let us think about it. No, why? Because Christ is Lord. That's the that's the reasoning. Now, in 1894, two years after that decision, the the United States was not a theocratic hellhole. <laughs> um, so the the I don't want to take um, the United States into some Christ, futuristic. Christian theo-fascist world. I I want to take us back to the kind of arrangement that my great grandfather lived in his entire life. That's is that so? I would say is that too much to ask? Right? No, no. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I think your your use of the phrase uh, "informal establishment." If I were to if if I have a listener, or anybody's listening to this, and they would uh, they they have qualms or whatever. I think I would point out, and I want to hear what you think about this, that we already have an informal establishment. It's just not Christianity at this point. It's That's it's right. uh, either secularism or whatever you want to call it. But there's very much a regime, if you want to call it that, that's enforcing certain codes and laws in accordance with exactly. their theos, cultists, whatever you want to say. So would you agree with that? Absolutely. You put your finger right on it. It's a, That's yet another instance of not whether, but which. Okay. So we have... Uh, there's going to be an established religion. There's going to be a, a corporate way of deciding ethical issues that that for determining the court cases that show up before your judges. And they're going to be appealed all the way up. And there's going to be a point past which there are no more are no more appeals. Yeah, and I think with some people, the reason I'm I talk about this a lot on the podcast and I, I'm very curious about these, these thoughts because it seems like it's a very contested ground right now. Like they seemed it was ascendant up until 2020. And then in 2020, it was like, all of a sudden I've got all these lost people, all these non-Christians who are very interested in these topics because they see it. It's like, they can't name it. They can't describe it. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important that Christians step into the contest and represent the Christian faith. Well, rather than, just going like, uh, we don't know how it all works out. And, you know, we don't really have thoughts. We don't get involved in politics. I think it's a, a huge evangelistic opportunity to Absolutely. reach people, to educate people. Um, 
something that I've been curious about, Doug, is there seems to be, I don't know if it's generational or what it is, but uh, Wolf in his book, he highlights how really the theonomists shouldn't be opposed to his project, but it seems like some are. And what I'm sensing is, and I read in your book, kind of a theocratic liberalism or uh, libertarianism. And so I'm wondering, you know, with people in my generation, libertarianism, if, if you're a good Christian man, you're going libertarianism is just a dead on arrival project. But it seems like men in an older generation still have a great fondness for the free market, a great fondness for all the all the talk about, you know, freedom. And guys like me who are are very cynical on the state and that kind of thing, we're going like, I don't know, man, I don't know about libertarianism. I don't know about that approach anymore. Um, can you help me? Do you see that tension? And if so, why do you think it, why do you think it exists? Okay. So I have a, um, I have a major problem with theoretical libertarianism. I, I think it's a, I think it's an idolatrous system that worships, um, the mechanics of the market and worships the autonomous free will of consumers everywhere. Okay, I so I don't like the the theocratic um, uh, th theoretical libertarianism. Um, I am I have described myself as a theocratic libertarian um, because when it comes to the manufacture and sale of widgets, I believe that people ought to be left alone. Right. So um, I'll, I'll put it this way: when when the Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. What is being presupposed? Well, what's being presupposed is the existence of marriage. If there, if there is no such thing as marriage, if marriage is a non-existent thing, an imaginary thing, then there's no such thing as adultery. And it makes no sense to prohibit adultery unless you presuppose marriage. Well, when the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not steal, what is presupposed? Property rights. Private proper, property rights. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a major advocate and defender of property rights because property rights are human rights, basically. Um, in Revelation, uh, the beast prohibits people from buying and selling. That's that's how he controls their lives. Uh, if if the state can stand on your oxygen hose, then they determine whether you live or die. So, when it comes to um, all the ordinary business in the market, uh, you sell in your zucchinis, you grew in your garden, uh, all of that stuff. I want the state out. Okay. But I want a Christian classical liberal order, not a secular liberal order. Because, because as recent events have shown, the secular liberal order cannot defend itself. What, what what has happened is lust is eating it up. Um, so j when John Adams uh, once said that our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people, he said it is wholly unfit for any other. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, mm. If you've got um, if you've got a nation of fornicating potheads, they are not going to be free in the public square. You, you can't take 300 million slaves to sin and build a free people out of it. Freedom is built on the bedrock of self-control. <laughs> and if yeah. people are not self-governing, which they cannot be unless the gospel is um, authoritatively present, unless the gospel is powerfully moving in that society, you're not going to have market freedoms. So I'm fond of saying free grace, free men, free markets in that order. Free grace, yeah. free men, free markets. Now, uh, but I, so then there's a structure that is required in the libertarian, even, a you know, uh, Ron Paul is a Christian gentleman. Uh, you know, he's, and, and he's the sort of the uh, poster boy of libertarianism. If you look at his um, book, I think it's called Liberty Defined, and look at the chapter on marriage. He wants to reduce the chapter on marriage to, to simple contract law. Okay. Well, 
that's kind of that's not kind of inadequate. That is profoundly inadequate because yeah. in a Christian social order, it, let's say there's two businessmen, and they, you know, one says, "Hey, I'm I need a, a thousand widgets, and I'm willing to pay a thousand dollars for a thousand widgets." One guy has a widget factory, and the other has a product he needs to install the widgets in, and they sign this deal, shake hands. It's all buttoned up. And then three weeks later, they're at a party or something. And they both in casual conversation discover this, this guy's widget factory burned down and the other guy's order for the things that he was going to need the widgets for canceled their order. So he doesn't need the widgets anymore. And the guy who makes them can't make them anymore. Do they have the authority as the two makers of that contract to tear up the contract? Hey, this isn't going to work. You, you okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with it. This would help me out. Yeah, it would help me out. They, they, they're the makers of the contract. They can tear it up and walk away. Well, suppose you have a man and a woman marry, and a year into it, neither one of them likes it. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Suppose they, they're looking at, do you love me? No. Do you love me? No. Um, no kids. They kept their bank accounts separate. Do they have the authority to tear up the contract? No. <laughs> it's because no. what God is what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Yeah. Right? And and what that means is I believe the civil magistrate sa- says, no. I'm not gonna so I want to get rid of no fault divorce. I I want to quit treating marriage, the building block of all healthy societies, as though it were simply a matter of shaking hands over a del- over the delivery of a product. Yeah, and I think you mentioned something, um, and that was really helpful on marriage, but going back to the John Adams quote, and even Alexis de Tocqueville, when they talk this way, I can hear some of my friends point out, well, Doug, we don't have a virtuous people. And it seems like if we were to follow your logic, we're just trying to resuscitate a project which is fine in theory, but then we're going to apply it to an unvirtuous people and we're just going to get the same product again. So well, the, how, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely right. So if, if uh, but here's the, this is the thing. If all the people who th- um, thought like we do were just lobbying their state legislatures and that's the only thing we were doing, uh, what we're, what we're is what we're doing is is utter vanity. It's putting a tarp over the top of a volcano. You, um, it's not going to restrain anything. It's just it's just going to be bad. Okay, but if the people who are talking like this are also preaching the gospel, planting churches, calling people to repentance, that's that's where the action is. So I know I know good and well that. What I'm proposing and describing is utterly and completely futile unless there's a massive reformation and revival. Okay. If there is not a massive reformation and revival, then I should save my breath for walking uphill. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that that uh, helps ground it more in ecclesial matters in terms of the importance of reforming our churches. So I, I definitely uh, appreciate that one. Uh, one question I had just applying it when we're looking at the first table of the law, um, for example, and, and you kind of raise the red flag on uh, like blasphemy laws, which were uh, prominent in, in uh, church history. Um, you raise the red flag on that. And I'm curious, is there any limit in which you would say blasphemy laws would be good? I mean, obviously we see them in the old Testament. Uh, we see them throughout church history. Is there any yeah. point at which you would, you would say, okay, now we've crossed a line. Yeah, you. If the question is, is it possible to apply blasphemy laws in a wicked and stupid manner? The answer is obviously yes. Right. <laughs> we're we're really good at that. Right. <laughs> so if if the question is, well, then someone says, um, well, then shouldn't we not have blasphemy laws at all? I say no, because blasphemy laws are an inescapable concept. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not whether you will have blasphemy laws. It's which things you will not be allowed to blaspheme. Right. Right. So right now, uh, someone says, I don't want your society because it would have blasphemy laws. 
uh, our town square is just 50 yards that way, right? And I could go out there and get arrested within 15 minutes on the basis of what I was saying alone. That's crazy. Okay. And I could do it in any major city in America. I yeah. can I can get myself arrested because I know what things I would not be allowed to blaspheme. Right. Okay. Um, so we've got blasphemy laws now. There is no society. There is no society that doesn't have blasphemy laws. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, yeah, I'm with you on wanting to head off and put in firewall protections against wicked and stupid blasphemy laws. And that means, and this is, I have a section on, uh, actually a couple, I, I treat this at length in the Mere Christendom book. Right. I, I, I believe that the, the principle of uh, blasphemer down through all, down throughout history has been the state rulers. So if I want to enforce the first table of the law, and I do, the first order of business is going to be to con construct a system wherein the state, the magistrate, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is not allowed to blaspheme. Right. Okay. So, and, and we should never forget that our Lord was convicted and executed on a blasphemy charge. So mm. um, Christians of all people should be sensitive to the fact that the existing authorities can do the most outrageous things, the most blasphemous things in the name of cracking down on blasphemy. Right? The most blasphemous act ever committed, the crucifixion of the Son of God, was an act that was done in the name of disciplining blasphemy. So let's fix that problem first. Before, you know, we've got this village atheist who sits out front of his house ranting about things. I don't want to begin by cracking down on that guy. Yeah. Right? Because, because if the state starts cracking down on that guy, what have I given the state power to do? Well, what, down on I've given them the power to determine what is and what is not blasphemy. And, and I've done it without any checks or balances that would keep them from blaspheming. I want to get that settled first. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think, yeah, your chapter on that was really, it, it kind of like woke me up to like, oh, yeah, that is what Christ was uh, charged with. So, you know, we should be really careful with with that kind of stuff. So that was really helpful. Kind of the last question I wanted to round out here with is, you know, I think there's a lot of people who admire the resolve you have had, uh, you guys have had up there in Moscow. And so, um, you know, it's an inspiring project for a lot of people. If people are looking around going like, you know, I want something like that near me instead of everybody migrating to Moscow, Idaho, which seems like mm -hmm. there's a lot. Um, you mm -hmm. know, what, what would it look like for for people in different places to, you know, start to lay the groundwork for things like what y'all are doing there? Where where would you tell them to go? How would you equip them in that way? Yeah, I, there are some things that we're doing here that are just unique to Moscow, which I don't think anybody needs to feel pressure or to duplicate or bad about duplicating. You know, we have a media company and a, and a, and a Canon press, let's say, I don't think every location needs to have that kind of thing, but where I would start, there's, there are certain key things that we do here that are duplicatable uh, elsewhere and should be not only is it okay to duplicate it's I think there's a mandate to duplicate. Um, one of them would be worship. Okay. God's people should gather every Lord's day to worship the Lord in a way that does not trivialize that worship where his word is honored. His sacraments are honored. Discipline is observed. So basically in your, your neck of the woods, are there preachers preaching the word of God faithfully who, who love the Lord and who discipline and who observe the sacraments the way they ought to? Um, find those people and support them right? Right. so that worship is worship is one. The second one would be Christian education. Okay. So I don't think that every region, every town needs a Christian media company, but I do think every town needs a Christian school. Mm. 
right? And so, um, and I believe that it's not really going to be possible to do that unless there's support from the church, um, encouraging parents to take their responsibilities to educate their children in the Lord seriously and so forth. So those would be the two things that I would, uh, if the Lord has got you in a location that's kind of a dry and desert land, um, the, the things that I would start praying about and start, you know, form a steering committee about getting something going would be a Christ honoring uh, worship service and a, a place for the kids to be educated in the Lord. Those, those, that's where I'd start. That makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Uh, this has been extremely helpful. Thank you so much for getting into these uh, questions with me and just helping me oh. learn about, you know, the history of, of, you know, where you've come from and, streams you swim in and all that kind of stuff. And uh, really, if people want to pick up your book and read more about this, is the best place to go Amazon, Canon Press, where should they go to pick it up? Either, either one. So it's available on Amazon. It's available through Canon. Okay, great. And if people wanted to keep up more with uh, kind of your thinking, your writing, what's the best place to keep up with you? So uh, my blog is uh, blog and may blog. Uh, and the address is dougwills.com. And we've arranged it so that on the front page of that blog, there's a portal or a way of getting to pretty much everything I'm involved with. Um, so, so if you go to blog and may blog, dougwills.com, then New St. Andrews College, ACCS, Logos School, um, Canon Press, all of that. There's a, there's a way of getting there. Fantastic. All right, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoyed this content, I'd love for you to uh, subscribe, give this show a great rating because uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, share this episode with a friend. Maybe they haven't thought about Christian politics before. This is a great little primer to get them thinking in the right direction. And if you uh, really enjoy the show, you can sign up on the Patreon, support the show. I dedicate about four hours, including editing and all that stuff uh, a week. And I provide most of this content, 99% free of charge on YouTube and other places to get podcasts. So I'd love some support uh, from my listeners. So I can keep bringing you great content. You can go sign up there in the show notes. We have little uh, stickers we'll send you. And by we, I mean Patreon will send you on my behalf if you sign up for uh, $5 a month. And I'd love your support. And we will see you next time.